Hi everyone, I hope you're all doing okay. Whether you're in West Wickham and the surrounding Bromley area or you've jumped online from slightly further afield, it's really good to be able to connect with you in this way. It has been suggested to me that I don't necessarily look like the stereotypical vicar, which, by the way, I'm going to take as a massive compliment. But because of that, it's been suggested that it might be good just to introduce myself. So if you're not familiar with my ugly mush, then my name is John. And for better or worse, I am the vicar at St. John's. And wherever you're connecting from, I hope, and I, and I deliberately emphasise that word because that's what we're going to be focusing in on this morning, the, the nature of Christian hope. But I hope that there is coming a time when we can put some skin on it, so to speak, when we can actually meet face to face, shake hands, or even radically throw off that great British reserve and go on in for a full on hug. I hope that's a possibility not too far down the track. Until that time, we're going to continue to try and produce materials for you that we we hope are a blessing and are helpful to you. I'm aware that some of you have asked whether we will move to a series of talks that focus around a theme or a book of the Bible rather than the, the slightly ad hoc approach that we've been taking so far. And, and the short answer is yes, that is the intention. I'm also aware that there may be a bit of a desire to redirect the focus away from COVID-19 and our current situation. And again, I get that. We don't, we don't want to sound like a, a stuck record, but equally we do want to speak into the reality of life as people are currently experiencing. So as we think about what is in the pipeline, we'll, we'll weigh all that carefully and hopefully we'll be able to produce a program that, that feels helpful and like I said, an encouragement to you. This week specifically, it, it felt like it was a good moment to home in on that passage from 1 Thessalonians and consider the nature of hope, particularly in the way that hope dovetails with grief. Because whether you've given it that tag or that label, I suspect most of us in, in some way have experienced some of the symptoms of grief in the last few weeks. Now, of course, there's the very obvious grief that comes from the tragedy of, of losing a friend or a family member. And I know for a fact that in the past week, some of you have tasted firsthand the very raw grief that comes from such a loss as that. And I sincerely hope that you've got good friends around you helping you shoulder that pain. But slightly lower down the scale from the loss of a loved one, many of us are experiencing feelings of just disorientation and loss that, that somehow the world is a bit off kilter, is off centre. I've seen plenty of people voice it and I've articulated it myself on occasions. There are just these moments when you're like you're pinching yourself and going, is this is this all a dream? Is this really happening? And whether it's not being able to see grandchildren, give a parent a hug, or simply just sit around a table with friends and enjoy a meal together, the discomfort, the anxiety and fears in some cases around all that, actually they are feelings of grief. And at the risk of a massive overgeneralization, I don't think we're that good at dealing with grief, at dealing with those feelings. It feels like it's very much part of our Western culture to, to push it away, to pretend it's not there and distract ourselves with everything else but those feelings. We either resort to working really hard or working out excessively, binging, whether it's on food or Netflix, we have a multitude of ways of ducking those feelings. 
one of our techniques of choice is to just put a positive spin on everything. Be cheerily optimistic. And, and of course, having a positive outlook is generally a really good thing. Um, I'm married to someone whose perspective on life is naturally upbeat and cheery. We, we jokingly call it bronze, candy floss, worldview. Uh, and I am a better person for living around that sort of spirit. It's contagious and infectious and it's a good thing. But there can be a dangerous shadow side to that positivity when it denies the reality and the pain of a situation. There is a woman called Kate Bowler and she wrote a book that's entitled Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I Have Loved. That kind of gives you a a bit of a window on where she's coming from. But she writes about how this idea that we're all supposed to be positive has become a bit of an an obsession. And she says this, I think it's going to come up on the screen, but let me read it for you. It gives us momentum and purpose to feel like the best is yet to come. But the problem is when it becomes a kind of poison in which it expects that people who are suffering are somehow always supposed to find the silver lining or not speak realistically about their circumstances. And here's the kicker. She goes on. The main problem is that it adds shame to suffering by just requiring everyone to be prescriptively joyful. She then goes off on a a little bit of a rant about millionaires on Instagram posting uh, making posts about choosing joy and all that sort of thing. Um, but it's not, the bottom line is, it's not too hard to recognise some of the threads of what she's talking about. And for me, it, it begs the question, is there another way to confront those feelings, to face grief, to deal with some of the things that we are experiencing, often in our guts, about our current situation? And the New Testament prescription The Apostle Paul's conviction is that we confront grief not with positivity, but with hope. Christian hope will get you through what optimism and positive thinking never will. Some of you will have heard of the story of Father Don Giuseppe Berardelli. It's a good Italian name, uh, but he's an Italian priest. And his story came out slightly earlier in the whole outbreaks, I think towards the back end of March. Father Dom was a priest in a small village in Ferriano in Italy. He turned 72 years old this year. He he was known for riding around on a red motorbike in typical Italian fashion, known for his cheerful smile. Uh, One family spoke about when their dad died quite young, he became a surrogate father for their children, breathing hope into them. And when the coronavirus swept through the village, he got sick. And inevitably, because of his age, he was vulnerable. And because there was a severe shortage of medical equipment in Italy at the time, the people in his parish, they loved him so much that they pitched him together and they bought him a ventilator. But he didn't use it. He gave it up so that it could be used for another patient who was a complete stranger to him. And a short time later, Father Don died. Now, if you're listening to this message today and you have a hard time believing in God, you might just start by believing in that act of love. It is not what would be thought of as an optimistic act, but it was a profoundly hopeful one. Optimism, which is a really good quality, is a predisposition to expect things to turn out well. 
It's most typically a personality trait and usually focuses in on circumstances. Hope, by contrast, is a virtue, is a Christian virtue, and it encompasses optimism and positivity, but it's rooted in something much, much deeper. And we're going to tease out that distinction a little bit as we look at these six verses in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians. And particularly, as I said at the beginning, how it interacts with grief. Because chapter 4 has this this wonderful symbiotic relationship between grief and hope. So grab your Bibles if if you've got access to one. Um, Thessalonians, if you're not sure where it is, it's towards the back of the Bible. So you're probably better off starting at the end of the Bible and working in. Um, And it's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and starting at verse 13. We're going to just run through some of these verses starts off in verse 13. It says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters. The implication being, obviously, that they were uninformed, that they were in the dark about this issue. So he goes, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who have died. Now, some versions have those who've fallen asleep. And again, that was just a different way that they typically used sometimes to describe somebody who had, who had died. So Paul is saying, I don't want you to be uninformed about those who have died. Why? He goes on to say, so that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. I don't want your grief to be hopeless. I want there to be this thing that we're calling hope. I I want that to be present in your sorrow and in your pain. And we'll see that the main question that Paul is addressing is, what becomes of believers who die before Jesus comes back again. What was going to happen to those who had died whilst waiting for that return? Because lots of the Christians in Thessalonica thought that the clock was running down, thought that Jesus's return was imminent. Interestingly, they're not worried about whether their friends would rise again. That was sort of assumed in their their faith mindset. That's not what's upsetting them. They're worried about Will those who've died, who are not still alive, and and Jesus comes back, will they miss out on this event when he rocks up again? Will they miss out on witnessing his glorious return? That is what is upsetting them. And the really important thing to note here is that Paul's response is deeply, deeply pastoral. Yes, it includes some theology about stuff that we call the end times or the parousia, if you really want to use alienating language. But he's not writing to give people the heebie-jeebies about the threat of rapture. He's writing it to comfort people who are in the throes of emotional pain and have a genuine emotionally poised question about their loved ones who've died. You only have to jump to verse 18 to, to kind of see his motivation. He wants to encourage these people with the balm of hope. And he wants them to encourage one another with that same balm, with that hope. So what is that hope? Verse 14, verse 14. The hope is that God will bring back those who have died. That what has happened to Jesus will also happen to his followers. There'll be death, burial, and then resurrection. And to address their particular concern, if you look at verses 15 and 16, for those who have died before Jesus's return, he says, they're not going to be at a disadvantage. Jesus will bring back the faithful departed with him when he returns. Those who've died, they are very much in on this moment. 
Jesus, it says, will call them to readiness for this moment, first of all, in fact. And then they will come back with him. And then you get this beautiful picture, this wonderful image of reunion. I don't know how often I've heard it expressed at, at the funerals that I take. That sentiment that, oh, we'll meet again soon, mum. We'll meet again soon, dad. And it's often expressed rather wistfully in a vague I really hope this is true sort of way. But Paul is saying here, because of the road that Jesus took, because of the historical events that we as apostles witnessed, of this man dying, rising, and then appearing again to us as his friends, eating with us, you can be assured as a follower of Jesus that there is a reunion coming when those who have died in him will come back with him and they will meet those who are still alive. And the summing up of all that, we will be with the Lord together forever. That is the hope you pin your colours to. Now, it's probably worth just saying a few brief words about the imagery of verses 16 and 17, because people have tended to say probably rather too much from relatively little and begin to push their own pet theories about what is known as the rapture. And at the risk of stating the obvious, these verses, we are in the realms of metaphorical language. That's the sort of language which is typically employed when talking about apocalyptic events. And even if you jump to the next chapter, chapter five, Paul talks about Jesus coming like a thief in the night and he makes a comparison with the labour pains of a pregnant woman. And he's not saying there Jesus is going to return as a criminal or as a newborn baby any more than he's suggesting in verses 16 and 17 that we're all going to float upwards and waft around in the clouds. Essentially, if you want to try and draw a unifying theme to all the imagery that's employed in those verses, uh, the imagery of trumpets being blown, being caught up in the clouds, meeting the Lord, a lot of it is just Old Testament language for God showing up, for God making himself known, for putting in appearance. Now, in particular, that verb to meet has a very formal use. It's used in verse 17 as we will meet the Lord in the air. But it had a formal use to signal the arrival of a great person, a dignitary, often royalty, something like that. It has this idea of people, people going out to meet their ruler. Now, interestingly, the expression in the air in the first century was often thought to refer to the abode of the demons. And the Satan is described as the ruler of the kingdom of the air in Ephesians 2. Don't get too hung up on that stuff, but the sense is that Jesus is coming back with complete mastery over that territory. He's coming back as the ultimate ruler, the king of kings that he is. And he's coming back to extend his reign completely to extend his reign in our world where the things of God have held sway, where diseases like COVID and a thousand other evils have caused pain. You see, hope must have an object, something that we focus it in on, direct it towards. And as a follower of Jesus, the object of hope is God himself and the promises that he has made. And that promise here that the king is returning and he is bringing his good rule with him. Now, 
I just want us to circle all the way back on ourselves, all the way back to verse 13 and begin to pull in a bit of imp- uh, application, not implication, application. Paul is saying, I want you to know about this hope, this hope that we've just talked about. And I want you to know about this hope for a reason. And that reason is so that you may grieve differently, so that you may grieve in a way that is not hopeless. Paul is not saying to Christians, he's not saying that Christians don't grieve. We're not people who slap on a Christianized version of superficial positivity. Or even worse than that, perhaps a a strident certainty about what is going to happen that denies the reality of sorrow and pain. We are people who grieve. The word itself, lupeo, it's, it's, it's a feeling in our bodies when life has hurt us and our soul is attempting to heal. It's way, way more than just sadness. It includes a whole range of emotions, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and then acceptance. But it, but it's never a straight line graph. We don't just through walk, walk through each of those different feelings, different emotions in turn. We don't start off by, not, by denying something is wrong and then neatly move on to an angry stage. It, it's a little bit more, I'm trying to think of a way to describe this. It's a bit more like a, a pot of multicoloured paint being thrown against the wall and it's just come splurging all over the place where feelings are running into each other and there's no real order to it. And that cocktail of feelings often comes when we are robbed of a future that we were hanging on for, that we wanted. When the illusion of that we are in control of our future, that illusion is exposed. Grief comes when we are not in control. And that's why right now we're all experiencing some of those feelings to a, to a greater or lesser extent. COVID has robbed us of control. It's thwarted so many of our plans. And, and boy, this, this is a toughie. Uh, and like many of you listening to this, I, I don't find this an idea that I warm to easily. But there is a rich tradition in the Christian faith of allowing grief to be more than a feeling allowing it to happen to us, but actually shaping it into a practice, a spiritual discipline, if you like. In the Hebrew wisdom literature, it's called lament. And it's a cry against evil, but a cry made to God. It's a processing of all that emotional pain that swirls around inside of us and and bringing that to, to God in trust and most importantly, in complete honesty. Lament is how we pray when it feels like that our prayers have actually gone unanswered, when God seems silent. And it's a raw, brutal honesty. And two thirds of the Psalms, kind of poems and prayers and songs, they include elements of lament and acceptance. Jesus himself put lament on display on a number of occasions at the death of one of his closest mates, Lazarus, in Gethsemane when he's facing the prospect of the cross, on the cross itself. But it's about giving expression to the full range, the full gamut of our emotions, the full emotional range of who we are. So Paul encourages us to grieve properly, to lament what we have lost. But more, so much more than that, he wants us to grieve with hope. It's a little word, elpis, that means with a sense of expectation. 
Contrast it with fear. Fear is the anticipation of future suffering. Hope is the opposite of fear. It's the expectation of a future good. Hope for tomorrow that enables us to endure, to muscle on through today. And as I said at the beginning, hope is a Christian virtue. Not something that just kind of pops there, but it's something that we can grow, that's something that we can mature in. I love this this quote from a guy called Vaclav Havel. The more unpromising the situation in which we demonstrate hope, the deeper that hope is. Hope is not the same as optimism. It is not the conviction that something will turn out well, but the certainty that something makes sense regardless of how it turns out. It hints at the reality that the deepest form of hope that we can have comes from elsewhere. It comes from outside of ourselves and outside of our circumstances. In other words, that we do what we do for God to see. He is our audience. It goes back to that audience of one thing that we looked at earlier in the year. Because he is the one. He is the one returning. He's the one calling us home. So no matter what happens in the here and now, no matter what situation we confront, we cling to that hope, that promise that Jesus will make all things new. As it says in Revelation, he will wipe away every tear. There'll be no mourning and pain and crying. But how is it that we grow that hope muscle? How is it that we extend that virtue? How is it that we grieve well? Here's just a few simple ideas that you can run with this week. They're they're not exhaustive by any stretch. And if you want to get in touch with me um, to think about some other ideas, then then please do that as well. But here's just a few few simple things to begin with. First of all, be honest with yourself and honest with God about where you're feeling disappointment or perhaps even stronger than that, disillusionment. That is the start of grieving over those things, of lamenting broken dreams, if you want to put it that way. So acknowledge where you are experiencing that kind of deflated, disappointed feeling. And then just try and reshape that a little bit and try and make friends, if you like, with disappointment. Recognise that actually disappointment isn't necessarily something to be feared or to be viewed of as an enemy. Recognise it as a little warning dash, sorry, warning light on your dashboard that your hope was misplaced, that you had made the object of your hope something other than God and his promises. The same with disillusionment. It's simply an indication that we are living an illusion. We all hold ideas that that on the surface actually look quite good. You know, bad things don't happen to good people. Or if I save myself for marriage, I'll meet the perfect partner of my dreams. They're not bad things per se, but it betrays a slightly magical, wishful thinking and it's distorting reality for you. So ask yourself, what was the illusion that I was living and how do I come back to God in reality? That whole process, it's a kind of truth-telling process in some ways, can be part of the lamenting process. Do it on paper if you like. I'm not a massive one for journaling, but I'm increasingly recognising the power of actually picking up a pen as opposed to even doing it on a computer and just jotting some stuff down on paper. And it helps to bring to the surface perhaps things that you weren't even aware you were feeling or thinking about it. But I view, I view that whole process like breaking up the ground, if you like, 
breaking up the ground in readiness to sow hope. And a really, really simple way to sow hope is is to do a bit of a word study on hope in the New Testament. Just dig out all those places where hope is talked about and get familiar, get familiar with the anatomy of hope, what hope looks like, its true nature, how it is described in the Bible. There's a guy called Lou Smeads and he talks about hope being made up of a cord of, of three strands. And the first is imagination, forming in your mind a picture of what it is you're hoping for. And for us, it's allowing the New Testament, God's word, to speak that picture to us and then beginning to dwell on it and meditate on it and allowing it to ferment so that we build this this holy imagination of what that promise, what that hope is. The second is wanting. So you begin to hunger after that picture. You begin to bend your desire and say, actually, yeah, that is what I want. That's what I want to run after. That's what I'm going to begin to try and live for. And then the third is belief. You start to believe that this thing is coming. You dwell on the reasons why it's possible. Just go back to what Paul was talking about, the sense that actually it's not just pie in the sky that he's talking about. He's saying, actually, this is rooted in a historical event in people witnessing this guy die and rise again and make these promises. You start thinking about the reasons why this is true. And you then begin to believe that this thing is coming. Those are three actions that can help us build hope as we dig into the the, the nature of Christian hope. I'm going to sort of bring it to a close there I've probably gone on for a little bit too long but I just want to say we are all invited into an adventure with God that is unimaginably greater and nobler than just trying to attain personal tranquility it's, it's not easy to do it, it takes a bit of work on our part and it, and it definitely demands a bit of reshaping of our thinking But it does involve honesty, honesty about what we miss, that we're not immune from the pain of those losses that we've been talking about and that we grieve, that we grieve naturally like other human beings do, but we do so in hope. And that feels like an act of surrender, an act of surrender to his future based on trusting and confidence in his love and his his wisdom and his involvement in our world currently. But perhaps most of all, the emphasis is on his promises for the future. As as someone said, we aim our desire over the horizon of this world into the next. I pray that you may experience deep in the fibre of who you are in this coming week, that hope. And it may help you to very naturally grieve and mourn your losses, but discover the joy and the peace that comes from the Christian hope. God bless one another. Take care.